once again for the kids here again this week. Uh, you did a great job last week. Uh, well done. So it's good to have you here again for the service. Uh, nobody brought me a picture, which I'm okay with. But if you do draw a picture or something like that, I'd love to see your picture. One time I was, this is actually when I was preaching at Sweet Communion a couple years ago, they, uh, one kid came up with a picture of this bald guy with this microphone on his they said, here's a picture of you. So you can even do that if you want. <laughs> uh, it's great to have you with us. Now, we're, we come to a, a great turning point in the book of Mark as we've been following through the book, 16 chapters. We're right about the halfway point, uh, just over. Uh, but we, it's a major turning point in terms of themes, and it's quite a jarring passage, actually. It certainly was for the disciples, and it certainly can be for my own heart as I read it. It really confronts me. I, I don't know if you've ever felt tricked by some fine print or something that just wasn't as clear as you thought. Uh, yesterday we were looking for this. We were trying to uh, reserve a place for this short day trip that we're going to do. And it was on sale, the place to stay. It was $65. Click on through. And all of a sudden there's fees that show up that are more than the actual room itself. Over double. It's like, where did that come from? It was probably some small print somewhere. We didn't see it. Or maybe you, you go and you, you, you want to get the buy one, get one free cereal, and you take it up to the counter, and your coupon says buy one, get one free, and they say, well, that one doesn't work. You have the, you have the, the 9-ounce box. This is for the 12-ounce box. You think, well, I'm actually getting the smaller box. says right there, doesn't work. You just feel tricked. This is the fine print. There's no fine print when it comes to Jesus calling his disciples. It is shining bright in the sky. This is what it means to be a follower of me. I'm going to put it plainly. I'm going to put it clear. The passage even says Jesus spoke plainly to them. No more parables. He's not revealing anything. It's just up front. Here it is. The terms and conditions of being a true follower of Jesus. And you might hear the claim of the passage this way. That the way of Christ is cross-bearing unto exaltation. The way of Christ is cross-bearing unto life, or unto victory. And as the way it goes for Christ, so it is for his followers. The way of Christ, the way of Christ's followers, is cross-bearing unto freedom. And so we'll just walk through the passage, uh, beginning in verse 22. We saw this one last week, actually. Let's go ahead and read that paragraph once again. And they, they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to Jesus a blind man, and they begged him to touch him. And he, touched, he took the blind man by the hand, and he led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up, and he said, Well, I see people, but they... They look like trees walking. Jesus laid his hands on him, his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. He, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home, saying, do not even enter the village. So this, this passage here uh, actually starts a new section. Now, if you were here last week, you might be thinking, well, last week you said it ends a section. It's the, the bottom part of a sandwich, which is true. So what we have here is a passage that serves as a bridge. 
It's, it's helping us to see what's going before it, and it's going to move us into a new uh, section. And it, it's meant to function like an illustration. And so last week we saw uh, with these two, uh, the healing of the deaf man, the healing of the blind man, both in very peculiar ways. Is Mark's way of helping us to see that not only was this miracle done, but it's meant to illustrate something, the, the very narrative that surrounds it. And in this passage as well, the very peculiar aspect is meant to draw attention to not only just the miracle itself, but it's, it's painting a picture of what's happening in the narrative to fo- that follows where the disciples are at. So if you just think about these peculiarities again, what, first of all, he leads the blind man out of the village. Now, he led the deaf man out as well in chapter 60. The only two times he does this throughout the book, he leads them out of the city. And if you can picture this, you know, that he's, this man's blind, he takes him away from the crowd, and he's gingerly walking him, him through the city to get out of the city. When they get out there, he, he spits on the man's eyes, which, again, is very peculiar. It only happens here and in chapter 6, this spitting, touching the very organs uh, that need to be healed, which clearly Jesus doesn't have to spit on the person because he doesn't do it anywhere else. And then, uh, in this one in particular, he asks the man, do you see anything? It's almost as if Jesus is, I mean, as you read it, almost as if he's wondering, "Did, did that work? You know, like throughout the, throughout the Gospels, when Jesus heals someone, it's very decisive. Take up your mat and walk. Your faith has healed you. Or at times, the, the person's not even there. Go home. Your daughter is made well. It's very decisive. He's, he's not questioning, like, did, did I do that right? This is very peculiar. Mark's drawing us attention to something. And then, of course, what's very interesting about this one, you have the double, the double uh, healing, right? It, it like works partially, but not all the way. It's just sort of like what I feel like sometimes when I take my car to go get fixed. It's like, eh, maybe, maybe it's running a little bit better, but that other noise is still kind of loud. Or what, you know, you know it, it didn't fully get fixed. What's going on? we got something going on with our radio right now. It's like, yeah, it's better, but I don't know what's going on with this thing. Or you go in for surgery for your shoulder. You know, you, you could only lift it this high, and now you can lift it up this high, but... You know, I'd I'd like to be able to go up here. You know, that'd be nice. Like, it's just not fully fixed. Very peculiar. And this is meant then to illustrate exactly where the disciples are at. We're going to watch the disciples here proclaim Jesus' identity for the first time in the book. But they don't fully see it because they don't understand his mission. They understand his identity now, but they don't understand the mission that he is quite on. So let's keep moving forward. Jesus then went on his way with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, So, who do people say that I am? Well, and they told him, John, John the Baptist, and then there's others that say that you're Elijah, and then others, well, they say you're one of the prophets. And Jesus asked the disciples, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You're the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged him, them, to tell no one about him. All right, we'll pause there. Uh, One of the ways that he he demonstrates we have a turning point in the story is this, this use of the phrase, on the way, in verse 27. 
Uh, this word picks up steam here for the next two chapters. Almost half of the occurrences in the book are right in this section. Jesus is now on his way to Jerusalem. Remember, in the book of Mark, at the very opening of the book, we're given this quote from Malachi, where God comes to visit his people and he comes to his temple to cleanse it. And yet the whole book, Jesus hasn't even set foot in Jerusalem. He's staying very far away from Jerusalem. From this point forward, he's making his way there. So he first goes up to Caesarea Philippi, very far north. And the rest of the next two chapters, he's going to make his way south, down to Jerusalem. Now what's going to cover, uh, be covered in these next two chapters, mostly, is Jesus' instruction. He's going to clarify to the disciples, what does it actually look like for his kingdom? For, for him to be who he says he is. Up to this point, Jesus has been demonstrating his authority, his power, right? All the miracles. This is demonstrating his identity. Now he's going to instruct them. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a follower of me? And all of it's going to happen on the way. And so we see uh, the first time that the disciples confess Jesus. But he does it in this interesting way. First he, uh, first he asks them, hey, what's the latest poll on me? You know, everywhere we go, the crowds are gathering. The word is out of some guy, some miracle worker. What do, what do people say about me? So the disciples obviously hear the buzz. They, they know what people are talking. And so they, they, they lay it all out. Well, some say Elijah, most likely pointing back to this Malachi passage, that uh, before the Lord comes to his temple, an Elijah-like figure, a, a prophet would come and prepare the way for the Lord. So some, some think you're that prophet, Elijah has come. Others think that uh, when, when uh, Herod had John the Baptist killed, uh, you're him raised from the dead. So you're a prophet, but you're John the Baptist's prophet. And others, well, they just, they assume you're a prophet. Uh, the, the prophetic office was mostly silent for the last 400 years, and it's back. John the Baptist did it, and now, now we have another prophet in our midst. All three of them are some sort of a prophet here. Now Jesus then puts them on the stand says, what about you? It's time for you to testify. And in the book, this is an exciting part. This is like the journalist asking the politician the question we've all been waiting for, are you going to raise taxes or not? Yes or no? And they try to dance around it. Are you going to? That's all, all we want to know. We don't want to know your reasoning. Just tell us yes or no. And the crowd waits. And this is a major point in the book. Who do you say that I am? Up until this point, the disciples have not claimed who Jesus is. The only people in the book that have identified the identity of Jesus are the demons. The demons are the ones saying that you, he's the Holy One of God, that he's the Son of God. And you get a little bit of a flavor from the Gentile woman in verse uh, chapter 6 who calls him Lord. Other than that, people aren't getting it. They don't see it. They're not claiming it. And here it is. They put him, on, put him on the stand. Who do you say that I am? And if I were putting this on film, this, I would let that question hang in the air because you've been waiting for this. Are they getting it? Do they see it? And then Peter would step forward with this triumphant gut response. You, you are the one we've been waiting for. The anointed one of God who would proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You're the anointed one. Christ means anointed one, Messiah. You're the anointed one from Psalm 2 
who is the son of God, who would be given a kingdom, who would reign over all nations, who would crush the teeth of the wicked. And all who take refuge in you will be blessed. You are the Christ. And the music would sound. Excitement would be there. Which makes verse 30 so strange, so striking. Verse 30, we have this proclamation, you are the Christ, the anointed one, to bring victory to God's people. And Jesus strictly charged him. Actually, the word is rebuke. It's the same word that's used in verse 32 and 33. This idea of rebuke or strongly warn with a threat of um, some sort of a response, a visceral response if you disobey. This strictly charge, he rebukes them to tell no one about him. Which is striking. What seems to be is is most likely, uh, this is the idea of them, them getting it but not fully getting it. They see that he's the Christ They don't understand how he's going to bring that about. And so they're not ready to actually go proclaim him as the Christ because they don't understand his mission. That now is going to come into clear focus. And so we continue, verse 31. And so Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And he must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and he must be killed. And after three days, he will rise again. And he said this plainly, and and Peter took him aside, and Peter began to rebuke Jesus. But Jesus, turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God. You are setting them on the things of man. What a striking moment this would have been. Jesus, beginning with this Son of Man figure, third time throughout the book that he's brought up the Son of Man. The Son of Man is actually Jesus' favorite title for himself throughout the Gospels. It comes from Daniel 7, uh, where, where in Daniel 7, Uh, that one like the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days and is handed a kingdom that he will rule over all peoples. He will rule over all nations and have an everlasting kingdom. And Jesus, calling himself the Son of Man, he comes in victory. This is very much like the Son of God language, the anointed. This is victory. This is victorious. But he's instructing here, that the victory comes through cross-bearing. It's not avoiding cross-bearing. It's not bypassing suffering, but actually the victory comes through it. So the disciples here, Peter and the disciples with uh, Peter, are doing well in one sense, right? They are are grasping the identity. They've been given eyes to see. But it's... It's more like trees walking. They don't see fully clear. They need some clarification. They need need rerouting, you might say, in GPS style. Before GPS was out, I was was horrible, horrible, uh, always lost, uh, because I couldn't follow the maps. But even with GPS, I still, you know, she tells me to turn, but I, I get lost in conversation or thought. And before you know it, I look down at the screen, and it's rerouting, because I missed the turn. 
Right? I'm going along good, but I need, I need redirection. This is the disciples. Okay, we, we've made it forward a little bit, but it's not fully clear. We need rerouting here. The Christ, the Son of Man, his victory will come, but he must suffer. He must be rejected. He must be killed. Now, I don't think Jesus is merely predicting the future, although that's part of it. It's this must aspect, is that is the very plan of God. The suffering that Jesus will undergo, and as we see in the next paragraph, the suffering for his people is not plan B by God. This is, this is the plan. Victory comes through suffering. Life comes through cross-bearing. And that's worth hearing here. Hardship may not indicate that you are missing God's best plan. Right? Sometimes we actually wonder when life is hard, when we feel like we're doing what God's calling us to do and life keeps getting harder, we begin to wonder, maybe, maybe we missed something. Maybe we're doing something wrong. Maybe God's not with us in this. But believer, you who are blood-bought have been brought to God, not by perishable things like gold and silver, but with the precious imperishable blood of the Lamb of God, who were known before the foundation of the world, brought to God. As you encounter hardship for the sake of following Christ, you are not getting God's plan B. That is the plan of God. Because Cross, it is cross-bearing unto life. And on the flip side, to resist the way of Christ, to actually resist cross-bearing, and this passage says to do that is to be in the same spirit as Satan. I mean, look at that. Look at the way this passage flows. Peter says, you're the Christ. And Jesus says, you're Satan. And why does he say that? But because Peter has the mindset here is that his desires, his plan, his view should be the one that should trump Christ's. In other words, it's to say, not your will be done, but my will be done. And I'm just like Peter personally. I want Jesus to follow my plan, my desires, my hopes, my dreams. I want to come to Jesus and say, not your will be done, but mine be done. And when we do that, it's in the very spirit of Satan himself. So this is a very striking passage. It's, it's plain. It says it could... It's very clear, but Peter just can't put it together. He can't put together the fact that there's a triumphant king and suffering and victory in the end. He can't put all three ingredients together. And to him, that tastes very bad. We have one, one of our kids, I won't say his name, but his initials are Dupree. And <laughs> he, the, the, the boy wouldn't eat pizza for years. Pizza, right? It's, he likes cheese. He likes sauce. He likes bread. But the concept of all of them together, cooked with, and melted, 
uh-uh. And he wouldn't touch it. You could not convince the kid to try it. But of course, as you might guess, finally when he had that first taste, and he loves pizza. Peter here cannot put all the ingredients together. He doesn't see it yet. He needs clearer sight. And so we continue verse 34. Jesus then calls the crowd to him. So evidently, Jesus walking on his way with his disciples, there's also a crowd following. And so he stops and he calls everybody together. Calls the crowd with, to him with his disciples and he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And there you have it. There's Jesus' great instruction. This is, a, this is a great invitation. You want to follow me? I mean, think if you were there. I mean, this is the man that they've all been hearing about, going around with these powerful miracles, raising the dead, healing the leper, making blind eyes to see, deaf ears to hear, stilling the waters. And he says, if anybody wants to come follow me, and this is the moment where he whips out now the contract. He says, you just need to sign on this dotted line right here. I'm going to tell the conditions very plain to you. And there's three imperatives. This is what it looks like. These are the requirements. If you'll do these, you may follow. The first imperative is to deny yourself. It's this idea to not give any thought to yourself. Not have any concern for you. To say no to yourself. That means you do not call the shots anymore. Now this is not saying uh, just deny yourself just for denying yourself's sake. You know, many people deny themselves for political purpose or something like that. Or, or health reasons or something like that. This is specifically for the sake of Jesus and following him. Which means what he says goes. Where he tells you to go, that's where you go. How, you, how he tells you to respond to a person, that's how you respond to a person. What he says, what his opinion matters. Your opinion now, you can scratch that right off the paper. You, he doesn't need your opinion about things. Deny yourself. So sign away here. Sign away your comfort. All your longings to avoid hardship. This, our culture despises hardship. The whole system is set up so that you don't have to have hardship at all. We can't stand it. In fact, we think it's a, a, a fundamental right that nobody should have hardship. And to live in that, this type of culture and think that we're not affected by it, we deeply are. We cannot stand the thought of giving away our comfort. We want comfort uh, in, in ways that it comes about. Is comfort means choices. We can choose between the schools we want to go to. We can choose between the clothes we, we want to buy. We can choose be between the types of jobs we can have, the types of homes we have, the types of cars we have. Choices, choices, choices. We deserve choices. It makes us feel safe. It makes us feel comfortable. Means, comfort means freedom. We love freedom as a country. In fact, we, we think that governing officials have to give us freedom. Don't get in our way. We deserve freedom. And Jesus says, no, I want you to sign right here and give up your freedom. 
give up your comforts. The Lord Jesus left the comforts of heaven and came to a sin-soaked world and laid his life down and was mistreated by earthly powers. He didn't come in and seeking comfort. He says, that is the way it will be with you. Deny yourself means to sign away your dreams, your hopes, your dreams to have this career, have this type of relationship, to have this type of body, to have this type of health. Sign it all away. To deny yourself means to sign away your preferences. We're a culture that loves to to tell us that we can do what feels right to us. There's the old proverb, first look out for number one. And Jesus says, no. Not if you're going to follow me. Your preferences don't matter anymore. You sign that away. Deny yourself. Denying yourself means to sign away your reputation. We want to be liked. We want to be affirmed. We want to be understood. We want to be respected. To follow Jesus is to follow the one that was despised and rejected by men and crucified. And yet we think that we should have a good reputation. Jesus says, you want to follow me, sign right here and sign away your reputation. And my heart then says, well, if, if I do that, people are go- they're going to treat me badly. He says, yeah, you're following the one that was mistreated by men. And I once heard that someone, uh, someone said, that you will know that if you are truly being a servant, when people treat you like a servant. To deny yourself means to sign away your safety. Part part of the whole system that we live in, the dream of the land, you work hard, and eventually you have safety. And you just kind of coast into the end of life. Safety. We love safety. Now, none of these things are bad. None of them. Right? Having reputation or safety or comfort, those aren't bad in and of themselves. But we are signing our rights away to him. We're saying, Lord, whatever you say is what I will do. And so the question then becomes not what I think or what I want when I'm trying to figure out a situation or what to do or what's right or what's wrong. That's not even the question we should be asking. The question is, what does God say is right? It's not what's easiest. What does God say is right and what will serve other people? What will honor God and care for others? My preferences don't matter here anymore. Jesus says, I want you to d- deny yourself. Sign yourself away like that. I don't know, when, when others look at your life, do they, do they see something character, that characterizes, like you're a person that denies yourself? I don't know about you, that, that, is, that is a searching question for my own soul. I love my opinions. I love my, what I want. That's why I want it. This is a hard thought for me, for Jesus to say, I want you to deny yourself. Sign it all away. And then he goes on and he says, the second paragraph uh, uh, imperative is to take up your cross. Now, in that culture, this is going to have a strong image here. Anybody walking through the city 
carrying a cross beam is not coming back. They're, they're carrying the very instrument on which they will die. And so Jesus here very clearly telling them, I want you to pick up the instrument that is going to humiliate you and torture you unto death. I'm calling you to come and die. That is a striking thought if you're standing there. You want, you want us to, to, to what? Pick up a noose and carry our noose through the city? Carry our electric chair through the city? That's what this is about? That's what following you means? Humiliation. You know, crucifixion was one of the most horrific ways to die, pain-wise, uh, and it was very humiliating. They, they, they would only do it to the worst of the worst of criminals, and it said that they would only very rarely do it to a woman, and if they did do it to a woman, they would turn her around to face away from the crowd because they could not bear to see the look on her face. It was an excruciating way to die, and it was humiliating. They, they'd make them walk right through the city where people are spitting on them, smearing them, and Jesus says, yeah, how do I explain to you what it looks like to follow me? Like that person walking through the city, carrying their cross. If you're willing to do that, keep coming. Now, to be clear, the, the scriptures do not teach that we never flee danger or something like that. Jesus himself fled situations. Paul fled situations. The point is that we sign away our rights to safety and comfort, and what we want. We're signing ourselves away unto Christ. And he ends it with a third uh, imperative, to follow me. This one's quite straightforward. I mean, you've been playing that game, follow the leader since you were a kid, probably, right? Follow the leader. How does that go? One person is leading, the rest of the group does what? They follow. And the whole point of the game is that the people behind them don't tell them where to go, right? They're not the ones leading the, the ship here. They're not telling them to go left or right or go over this uh, piece on the, on the um, playground or anything. It's, they're following the leader. And Jesus says that's what this is going to be about. So that when Jesus commands us or ordains a hardship, we then come to the Lord and say, not my will, but yours be done. I, I think C.S. Lewis sums up this, this whole idea very well in mere Christianity. He says this, this is what Christ is calling us to. Christ says, this is C.S. Lewis, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self. That's not what this is about. I've come to kill your, yourself. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and cut off a branch there. I want to have that whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth. I don't want to crown the tooth or stop the tooth. I want to have that tooth out. Hand over the whole natural self. All the desires which you think are innocent as well as the desires you think are wicked. I want the whole outfit. These are hard words from the Lord. 
This is very direct. I want everything from you. And then he goes on to illustrate it and explain some more. Verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. In other words, if you preserve your life here, you will lose it. If you lose your life here, you will actually preserve it. You will have it. Right? Verse 36, a different picture. For what, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? How, how would you answer that question? What does a man profit if he gains the whole world? I think the answer is meant to be something like this. Well, he will gain temporary relief. Temporary relief from the pains of the world. You can, you can gain it all, right? You are the richest person alive in the universe. You will have temporary relief. But you will have eternal loss. Eternal sorrow. Verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. If you will not confess Jesus by words and by way of life, by denying yourself, you will have temporary pleasure, but you will have eternal shame and loss. So what Jesus is doing here is, is holding out two choices for, for us. Very clear. He's saying you can have temporary gain in this world, which leads to eternal loss. Or you can have temporary loss. Deny yourself. Take up your cross, temporary loss, and eternal joy, eternal life. This is uh, that old Jim Elliott quote that is very famous. Many of you probably know this. 1952, he was killed in Ecuador uh, for the sake of the gospel. He had penned in his journal years prior. Uh, he said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He's no fool to give away what he cannot keep. You can't keep it anyhow. To gain that which you cannot lose. Now, the interesting thing to see here is sometimes when we read a passage like this, all we hear is the hardship. Deny yourself. Take up the cross. And we miss the glory that it leads to. Right? Cross-bearing unto life. This, this passage is an invitation from Jesus Come and find freedom. Because, I mean, if you think about that question, what do you gain if you have the whole world? What, what will you gain if you have the whole world? You'll have the whole world, and you still won't have the satisfaction your soul looks for. You, you'll have everything and have nothing at the same time. You'll be empty. Because our souls were made for God, not for us, not to build our own kingdom. To live for ourselves is like building a, a glass house. And you'll have this beautiful house. Oh, it will be glorious. All the neighborhood will love it. You will love it. And every time a kid walks by with a rock, you will be anxious. Because you know you can't preserve things in this life. And you know any, at any moment you could lose it all. So it's just a very temporary pleasure and then poof, it's gone. And Jesus is saying, I want, I want to pry your hands off of that and give you true life. 
Life now and life eternal. If you remember, eternal life, uh, it's not only meant to communicate a quantity of years, you know, something that goes on forever, but a quality of life. Jesus in uh, the book of John says, this is eternal life, to know God. Should we taste it now? And then on the other side of glory, after we close our eyelids for the last time on this earth, and we see the Lord only and forever, everlasting joy. No mixture of sorrow. What Jesus is trying to do is invite us to true life. Not to live for ourselves. To live for yourself, you will lose. You will lose it all. You'll not actually be satisfied in this world. And in the next, you will encounter shame and pain and sorrow and judgment. This is great freedom, what Jesus is doing. He's calling us to something bigger here. Well, we got to start wrapping up here. How is this passage meant to land on us? What is Mark's aim in this passage? I, th- I think for some, some, for some this passage functions in the sense that it, it doesn't even actually even land on you. It's, it's, it's like the bad soil in, in Mark 4. The seed of the word is tossed out by Christ and it gets plucked up right away. There's no fruit. And, and those people, they might still remain coming and gathering with God's people every Sunday. They want just a, a little taste of Jesus. They don't want real commitment. They don't really want to follow him. They just want a little bit to kind of put a little wind in their sails and kind of make them feel good for the week. But not actually truly come under the wing of Jesus. And a word like this, you hear it, eh, I got things to do today. And off you go. The gospel will, will come with condemnation for you on the day of judgment. And so a passage like this will condemn you one day. For some, uh, a passage like this is meant to comfort. For those who are following Christ and are seeking to live out how God has called them to, whether that's they're pursuing something and they're encountering hardship or God has put hardship in the midst of their life and rather than trying to weasel their way out however they can and find relief, they say, God, this is where you put me. I will honor you. I will do the hard thing because I believe that's right before you and I will serve. This is meant to comfort you. This is the way of the kingdom. You're not missing what God is calling you. If you're experiencing pain and sorrow and shame and hardship, for the sake of doing what's right, what God is calling you to do. This is where God has you. He's with you. He will be with you. He will give you the power you need, the grace you need to make it to the end. This is meant to comfort you. You think of the first believers that received this, those who, some who were under great oppression, to have the, the knowing that Christ is with me. This is the way he said it would be. This was the way it was for him. And I'm not alone. And then for others, for, for many of us, I think a passage like this is meant to confront us. It's meant to correct us. We are, after all, foolish sheep. We quickly wander off. We start doing our own thing, and it's supposed to bring us back. It, when, when God warns his people in Scripture, it's, it's not meant to shame us. Shame on you for doing bad. It's meant to correct us and bring us back. It's God's grace to you to say, come. Hold on, don't don't chase that. That's not going to help you. Come, come, release your grip on the world and find freedom. Come back. This is meant to correct us, not reject us, but to correct us, to put us back on course 
And so this is good for us. If you feel confronted by the words of Jesus, that's good for you. That's Jesus correcting you and bringing you back to go, go this way, right along the path, and find life, true life. I, I imagine uh, this scene here, Peter probably never forgot that. I mean, you've probably been called some things in your life. At times those words go deep. I'd love to hear Peter tell this story about the day Jesus called me Satan. I wonder how he would tell that story. As you read the rest of the New Testament, I cannot think that Peter would tell that story and assume that that meant he was rejected forever. I think he would tell the story with honesty, but with great hope and joy. The last chapter that Peter wrote in his second letter uses that term beloved for God's people more than any chapter of the Bible. Because I believe Peter knew what it meant to be the beloved of God. Yes, sometimes he missed the boat. And yes, sometimes he was more in the spirit in the line of Satan than he was with Jesus. But nonetheless, because he was blood-bought, he was the beloved of God. And Peter, you know, months after this, the night Jesus was betrayed, and Peter denied him. If you remember that conversation, Jesus says to Peter, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he may sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon. I've prayed that your faith may not fail. And when you turn again, strengthen the brothers. I think that went deep into Peter as well, to know that Jesus, he, he actually handed me over to let Satan kind of play it over on me a little bit. And I missed it. I denied the Lord, but he was with me. He prayed for me that I, my faith wouldn't fail in the end. And he's the one that turned me around. And at the end of Peter's life, as he's penning letters, you get a picture of him understanding a little bit more about what suffering and hardship, denial meant in the life of the Christian for the sake of Christ. In his first letter, he tells us that even if you suffer for the sake of righteousness, you will be blessed. No more rebuking Jesus about suffering. Even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. The blessing of God will be on you, brother or sister. And he says it is better to suffer for doing right, if it be God's will, than for doing evil. So there he is. His theology is being built out by the good shepherd. If it's God's will for you to suffer, that's good for you. And he ends his fourth chapter by saying, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I love that from Peter. And he ends that first letter by saying, be sober-minded, be watchful, Christian. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, 
will himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. That's what the good shepherd does. He corrects us and sharpens us so that by the end of Peter's life, he's saying, God's grace is in the hardship and the denial. Let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he bore. And how do we know that there is actually eternal glory? Because Peter says it's the eternal glory that we've been called to in Christ. Because Christ has shed his blood and broken body on our behalf. And as we participate in the Lord's Supper this morning, we're reminded that that promise, when Jesus comes with the holy angels, it is good for us, not because we're great, not because we're going to do perfectly denying ourselves, but because Christ denied himself and laid down his life on our behalf. If you're a follower of Christ and proclaim him as the Christ and are seeking to walk in the ways that he has called us to, to bear your cross, then the table's open to you. Uh, it's not about perfection, but about direction. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, don't proclaim him as the Christ. We're not seeking to walk in repentant faith, and we ask that you not participate. But if you are a stumbling, repentant follower of Christ, we encourage you to come and participate together.